And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, grace and truth, they, they, they tend to be a little bit different, right? Grace people, they're often like the, it's all good, man. Can't we just get along, sing kumbaya in perfect harmony, let people be people? Grace people tend to cut slack, loosen demands, embrace the gray, make affirmative comments, offer concessions, and extend forgiveness. They're the type of people who let you eat ice cream before your dinner, right? Now, truth people... They see things as needing to be corrected, that we need to get things right. We can't sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya in perfect harmony until the errors are corrected. Truth people tend to fight for justice, look for clarity, and see things as more black and white than gray. They, they have conviction, and they expect obedience. They're less likely to, have you eat, to let you eat ice cream before dinner. How many of you would claim to be more of a grace person? Put your hand up nice and high so I can see who my favorite people are. Just kidding. How many of you claim to be more of truth people? Put your hand up nice and high. Okay, it's true, right? We tend towards one or the other based off of our nature and our nurture. We lean one way or the other, generally speaking. We often divorce these two, grace and truth. We divorce them from each other. That was an interesting noise. Did you guys hear that? Maybe not. I have noises in my head. Uh, we tend to divorce grace and truth from each other. And then we tend to surround ourselves with people who speak the same language as us. And we get in these echo chambers, these, these gracious echo chambers or these truth echo chambers. And then we demonize those who think and act and respond differently than us. And it's no secret we live in what is called a cancel culture, regardless of what you think of that. There's a cancel culture on the right and the left. So we're not playing favorites here. There's a cancel culture in the middle, maybe. The cancel culture is devoid of grace. You say something wrong, you verbally process your ignorance or your arrogance out loud, which we all do if we're honest with ourselves, right? But if you verbally process your arrogance or ignorance around the wrong people in the wrong way at the right time, you're canceled, there's no grace for you. We also live in a subjective culture devoid of truth. Where, where if you contradict somebody's lived experience or their feelings with fact, you're deemed as unloving. Because truth is subjective. I mean, we live in this culture with this phrase that we use, I'm living my truth. Not I'm living out the truth, I'm living out my truth. And, and there, there's some nuance here that we will talk about some this morning that we need to embrace. That, that, that like truth, the God's created established truth doesn't always match with our experience and lived truth. And, and there's some element of truth in between both of those, and we need to find grace in that. But the reality is we split these, don't we? And this isn't just in the culture. This isn't for us to point fingers at the culture and talk about how there's a cancer culture and a subjective culture out there, and the church gets it right. This is rampant among the church. There's, there's churches that tend to be more grace, gracious. They tend towards the, the grace ditch, and they focus on people. Then there's churches who tend to focus on the truth ditch. They tend to focus on the truths of the Bible, right? And oftentimes these churches war and fight with one another. We divorce grace and truth. We surround ourselves with people who think and act and respond the way that we do. Then we demonize the other side. I'm convinced this is one of our greatest downfalls in, in our culture, American culture. I can't speak to other cult cultures around the world, but American culture certainly, and even within the church, and the church culture. One of our greatest downfalls is that we've divorced grace and truth. 
And when I have you put your hand up, I'm not chastising you. That's just the reality. I do it too. I tend towards one more than the other. And it's in Jesus that we see this perfect wedding of the two. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. He's not grace or truth. And so today I want to consider John's description of Jesus as grace and truth. And then look at some examples of how he models grace and truth among real people that he did life with. And so we're going to start by looking at how John describes Jesus as both grace and truth. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and we've talked over this month about Jesus being the Word and the light, that he is the incarnate God come among us. John here in chapter 1, he's taking all this Old Testament prophecy about Jesus the Messiah. You think specifically about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where it says that a light has shone in the darkness. That's a, that's a common Christmas verse, and John is picking up on that prophecy and saying that light has come. Jesus is that light. Jesus is the Word. He is the Creator who was there in the beginning. He's pre-existing. He's always been. He is the light of God. He is the life of God, and he is now the grace and truth of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Love that John doesn't say here that Jesus is grace or truth. That sometimes he's gracious, and sometimes he drops a truth bomb. He is the perfect marriage of the two. You, you can't actually separate them. Like the, the true essence of humanity and what humanity needs, what our souls need, what our world needs, what our culture needs, is this perfect marriage of grace and truth, not these competing forces of grace and truth, the perfect marriage. And we see that in Jesus. Can you tell what this is from where you're at? In Oreo. You close up, people? This is an Oreo. What is this? Just some gross cracker. Right? Chocolate-flavored cracker. This, this is not an Oreo. It's the top of an Oreo. You don't want this. Some of you eat this to get through it so that you can get to that good middle stuff there. Together, this is an Oreo, right? And Jesus is the same way. He's grace and truth. You can't separate out grace and truth. We tend to do that. Jesus shows us how we hold these two things together. Grace, let's talk about grace. John uses this word grace in Greek. It's charis or charis or charis. It depends on how you enunciate words. Don't judge each other over it. Sometimes people do that within the church, and it's just frustrating and annoying. The more you get around religious people and in theological circles, there's some snobbery around our language. You can say the Greek word charis, 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 whatever you want. I actually know a handful of people named charis, 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 and they all pronounce it differently. It's like tomato, tomato, right? Colorado, Colorado. Who cares? You know what we're talking about. Grace. The English word is grace. The Greek word is whatever you want. It means a gift, a blessing, kindness, unmerited favor, or a favorable inclination and disposition towards another person. Isn't that beautiful? John is saying that God is favorable towards us. Humanity created in his image and likeness. He's inclined towards us. My kids are inclined to run down to Alfred's Hall and grab all of the good bagels and hoard them. I'm sorry, it's just the reality. That's what they're inclined towards. They're favorable towards the good treats more than they're favorable towards thinking about other people. We're working on it. 
But that, that's the reality, right? They're inclined towards it. We're all inclined towards something. We have favorites. We have things that we like. We have things that our hearts are drawn to, things that our bodies are drawn to, things that, that our in, in, internal desires are drawn towards. In a similar way, God is favorable towards us. He's drawn towards us. He pursues us the same way that my children pursue the good treats in the basement. God pursues you and I. He wants to be with us. We are, as the scriptures say, the apple of his eye. That's what it means for him to have grace towards us, to be bent towards us. And look at John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, For from his fullness... There's a great theological truth here where John is telling us that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells, not a part of God. And we've talked about this mystery as we've gone through this text, that we can't quite comprehend all this, that Jesus is God and man. He was there in the beginning. We don't understand it, but he is the fullness. And from his fullness, we have received, I love this phrase, grace upon grace. Grace upon upon grace, not grace one time for salvation. God was favorable towards us when we were a sinner, and then we repented and received the Lord, and now he's disfavorable towards us with all of our sin and our lack of doing devotions and our lack of obedience, right? Sometimes I think the Christian, the Christian life, we experience it that way. It's like, well, God was gracious toward me, to, towards me before I received him, but now that I received him, he's, he's a disciplinarian, and, and he really expects me to get my act together. And his favor, he's, he's actually not that favorable towards me. In fact, his favorable is conditional. He's favorable towards me when I do the things that, that I think he wants me to do. He's favorable towards me when I do the things that the Bible tells me to do. But when I don't do those things, his favor runs out. That's not what... We're being taught here. Grace upon grace upon grace. Favor upon favor upon favor. You believe that, church family? When you're in Jesus Christ, God is for you. He's favorable. He's inclined towards you. This idea of cascading grace. I grew up by Grand Marais. I grew up in Grand Marais by Lake Superior. And when I read this verse, grace upon grace, I, I, I've always had this picture in my mind of these cascading rivers flowing down into Lake Superior and how the waters just run over the rocks. And then down at the lake, how the waves keep coming up and pushing the rocks and how these rocks are round and smooth because of that cascading water. I was hanging out with Grant Larson, one of our elders here this last week, who last week did a silence and solitude retreat up in Grand Marais. And before I shared any of this, I was asking him how his trip went, and, and he played me this video here to show me one of his favorite places and how God spoke to him. If we could go ahead and play that video. There it is, cascading grace. 
God's favor for you and I are like those waves who continue and they go and they go and they go. And then Grant pulled this rock out of his pocket and he, he took that from the lake. This perfectly round, smooth stone. It happened to be white too, which is a beautiful picture of God's grace. God actually makes us pure. He makes us white. I don't understand all the science behind why that rock is white when all the others are brown, but it's this picture of God's cascading grace. That, that the, the grace of God, the water pushing us around, and, and those rocks, they have to hit each other, and that's part of the refining process. That's part of the smoothing process. Grace doesn't always feel graceful, right? I mean, God's grace in our lives, sometimes it, it, it's painful, and it's suffering, and it's challenge, and it's trial, but as we do life together in the loving grace of God, in the persistent shaping, forming of God, he rubs off our, smooth, our rough edges, and he makes us smooth. He makes us people of grace over time. Grace upon grace upon grace. I hope you lodge that in your mind, and every time you see the, the, the waves of an ocean or a sea or a lake or a river, you think about God's grace cascading in your life, changing you, making you new, making you like Jesus. Listen to a couple other passages. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not through your own doing. It is a gift of God. Grace is a gift. It's not something you earn. It's a gift given to you. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That's what John is saying here too. He's saying verse 17, look at verse 17 with me. It says, For the law was given through Moses. There's this Old Testament reality. God created this law to help his people function. There's a civil, a moral, and a ceremonial law in the Old Testament to help these people. I mean, it, it, it was their governing laws in their society and also their religious laws. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not just the truth bomb, 10 commandments on tablets of stone, but a person embodied among us showing us grace and truth. But all this grace isn't devoid of truth. Right? I mean, you, you truth people, you're like, yeah, that's nice. I get it. Grace upon grace upon grace. But the very fact that John is like preaching this, right, is an appeal towards truth, or, or where does truth enter? Are we supposed to just always be accepting and forgiving and loving, and, and where do we speak the corrective word? And that has to happen, right? This is saying Jesus is grace and truth, and, and he, he tells us in verse 14 and 16, uh, 17, that Jesus is both grace and truth. Truth, the Greek word is aletheia, it, it, it means reality, objectivity, sincerity, or authenticity. Those of you who were around this fall and heard the sermon series on authenticity, I said that word authenticity isn't in the Bible, but it comes from truth. It's this, this showing what's really there. It's truth, the substance of what is real and right. That's what truth means. It's not subjective, it's objective. There is an objective truth in this world. Like this right here in my cup it's grape juice. That's objectively true. I saw the container that it came from. Some of you are disappointed. This communion bread has gluten. Objectively true. The wafers, the crackers that you'll eat, do not. Objectively true. You can be at peace, those of you who are gluten insensitive. The pews that you sit on, they're wood, and they have pads. Yeah. They're wood. 
and they have red on them. <laughs> Whether or not they're comfortable, that's objective. Some of you may think they are, some of you may think they're not. Right? The difference between truth, subjectivity, and objectivity. And this passage is telling us that Jesus comes to expose us to the truth, that God is real. He's, he has substance to him. He's knowable. As we go through the Gospel of John this winter and spring, we're going to see what God is like. Jesus is showing us the truth of what God is like. No more mystery. We'll see it in the person of Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, later on in the book, and we'll get to this months from now, he says, I am the way and the truth, the aletheia and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The scriptures and the historical Jesus who really lived, really died, really rose again, this is historical fact, they make exclusive truth claims, objective truth claims. Life and death aren't subjective. We will all die. That's truth. We, we need water to live. That's truth. It's not subjective. You can't get away from that just because you don't like water. I mean, who does? It's so plain. It's so boring. You don't drink some water, you will die. Regardless of how we feel, there is objective reality to our lives. And sometimes, sometimes it feels subjective, but there is objective reality. When we gather together on Sundays, we proclaim truth. We want to do it in grace, with grace. We want to hold these two tensions together. And for us, there's always going to be a tension because we live in this fallen world. In Jesus, the tension is resolved and there's this perfect marriage of the two. I love when we were singing this morning that we were just proclaiming truth in song. Singing about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, proclaiming truth because we are people who are hungry for truth and we need truth. But we also need truth in grace, right? Don't divorce the two. Don't separate the two. Don't take one when you could have it all. This is awful. This is great. That's what we need. We need truth and grace together. And this morning, I wanna, now I just want to look at a couple examples of how Jesus shows us grace and truth together, how he models it for us. And so let's, uh, let's see this together. Look a couple pages to the right to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We'll see Jesus as grace and truth here in this passage. This is the woman caught in adultery. And you'll notice the heading here, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. A lot of the manuscripts do. That's why I think it's in our Bible and I'm okay using it. Some people are like, well, it's not in the very earliest manuscripts, so therefore it's not authoritative. Um, it's in a lot of the manuscripts, and I think it's a good passage. I don't think anything in here contradicts with the nature of Jesus, whether or not this is original to the text or not. But I think that's one of the reasons why we can actually trust our printed Bible, because they give caveats when there's things that are semi, this is semi-questionable, not even a big question, just semi-questionable. A little preface there as we go into this story. John 8, starting in verse, well, 7, verse 53 into 8-1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law 
Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You remember that passage that we even read this morning at the lighting of the Advent candle from John chapter 3? Like, we love verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then if you keep reading verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to, the, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then that's Jesus' teaching in John 3, and now here he's teaching it again. He's showing us verse 11. Did anyone condemn you? No. They're guilty as charged. They know that they're sinners in need of grace. That's their truth. They're living their truth if they're honest with themselves. Our lived truth is we're all sinners in need of grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's that's this grace, right? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus moves towards her. He's inclined to this woman who's caught red-handed. He doesn't like make her prove her, her change of life before he extends grace to her, right? He's not like, well, let's give this some time and see how it plays out. Let's see if you continue in your sin, regardless of what form it is or what, what shape it takes. But he extends to her grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. He's bent towards forgiving her. And then we see truth. Go and sin no more. So there is, this, there is this condition, there's this call, there's this appeal to a changed life now looks differently. I, I've given you a new command. But what's interesting is sometimes us truth people, we're, we're like, we jump right to verse 11, right? Where it says, well, he told her to go and sin no more. Also, the truth in this passage is that all of the accusers realize that they were no better than her and that they had no right to judge her and to stand by and accuse her. Like Jesus also taught, Before you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, you ought to take the log out of your own. And so they're they're there, they're trying to catch Jesus with this woman, and he says, verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. That's just as true as his call, as his command to her, as as, as his invitation to her to to come and follow him and to sin no more in in his declaration that I do not condemn you. It says in, Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, there's a ton of people who debate and argue or try to figure out what he wrote on the ground. We don't know. It's a complete mystery. There's some interesting theories out there. My favorite one is that he was diverting the the people's eyes from her to give her dignity because she was in a moment of shame. I, I don't know. It's cool. Might be what he was doing. We have no idea. Some people think he's writing some Old Testament law to condemn them so that they could see it and be reminded of it. Who knows? But he's writing on the ground, verse 9, it says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why did the older ones go away one by one? Again, there's a hundred theories. Maybe because the older you get, the more wise you get. 
That's not always true, though, right? And we know it. Sometimes the older you get, the more crotchety you get, and the more, the more settled in your sin you get. And so I don't, it could be age, I don't know. It could be the fact that they're men who often in this culture are taking advantage of women they're sleeping with women. They're going to prostitutes. We don't know the state of this woman. Was she a prostitute? Was she a married woman committing adultery? We don't understand what the word, this word adultery, it's improper, unholy sexual expression outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. We don't know the status here, but it's very possible that these men are cut to the core. They're like, oh, that's right. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones taking advantage of the women. We're the ones looking at them with a lustful eye. How, how could I condemn her? And they, they walk away. We see grace and truth, this beautiful picture of grace and truth. There's this little book called Grace and Truth written by an uh, a author named Preston Sprinkle, and I just want to read you this little ex- excerpt from him on grace and truth. He says, Some of the people who Jesus came in contact with were innocent victims, like lepers or widows, but others were entangled in all kinds of intentional sin tax collectors, drunkards, adulterers, and other sexually immoral sinners. What we see is that when Jesus encountered these people, he always started, he always started with love and acceptance of the person. And his love and acceptance often led to repentance and obedience. Starting a relationship with love and acceptance does not mean that you don't care about obedience. You grace and truth people feel it. You feel the the tension and the divide in our own souls. Here's what's true of Jesus. We just saw it, grace and truth. Starting Starting a relationship with love and acceptance does not mean you do not care about obedience. Jesus had an incredibly high standard of obedience. One of his most famous and longest sermons, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 8, in this sermon, Jesus says that lust is just as bad as adultery, vengeance is always wrong, and loving your enemies is always right. He condemns divorce, taking oaths, hypocrisy, and being anxious about the future. Jesus had a very high standard of obedience indeed. He wasn't some pot-smoking hippie who affirmed everyone's behavior. He was a strict religious teacher who preached hard-hitting sermons. Jesus had a very high standard of truth, yet he loved those who felt short of that standard. Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. Amen? Amen. And that's what John is telling us here. Grace and truth, grace and truth, grace upon grace upon grace. So if we consider this this passage, this story of the woman caught in adultery, how might this story transform how how we treat people caught in sin? If we consider this story, how might it transform the way that we respond to sexual sinners? Among who are most of us. Grace and truth. Acceptance and love moving towards. Also, here's what God wants for us. Here's what God calls us to. Go and sin no more. And again, this word sin, it has been so packaged It has all this religious baggage with it. It just means missing the mark, falling short. The reality of our brokenness. Let's look at one, uh, two more passages. Um, Let's go to the next one, Luke chapter 9. Sorry, Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, the wee little man was he. If you know, you know. 
Zacchaeus, the wee little man was he, he climbed up in a sycamore tree. Anybody? Okay, thank you. Luke 19, 1 through 10. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Ooh. Those rich people, they're the worst. Unless you're here tithing, then you're the best. I Take a lot of what I say with a grain of salt. I know I'm a pastor, but that's just lighthearted. Um, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seen, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. See, a wee little man was he. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus. And he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came and received Jesus joyfully. And when they, when they saw it, they grumbled. These are the onlookers, the religious elite, the religious leaders, leaders. They looked on and they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, to be a, a rich tax collector in the first century, this is like a despicable man that not many people liked at all. He had, he had, he's a traitor among his Jewish people, and he's now in a corrupt relationship with the Roman government. I mean, this is like, imagine Canada invades America. Okay, imagine. And, and they're occupying our territory. The Canadians come down, mounted on their horses, and they take over with their, with their French fries and vinegar. And this is probably a bad analogy. They're, they're too kind, and it's too cold up there. This this angry, powerful, other world government comes in and takes over our land, our country, and, and, and rips away all of our freedoms, all of what we treasure, all of what we dear. They shut down our churches. And then me, as your pastor, I decide to go work for that government, and I take your money, and I take your freedoms, and I tell you that your God is dead and stupid, and I'm making a profit. I'm getting rich off of you. How would you feel towards me? Like, oh, he actually did just pastor before for the money because now the money is with this other government that is God-hating and now he's working for them and he's taking, that's, that's Zacchaeus. And look at what Jesus does. He says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. In the first century, this is a sign of hospitality, acceptance, grace. It's Jesus moving towards a hated, despised, despicable sinner. Pick your choice of who that is. We all have our categories for who's worse than the other people. Whether we're thinking politically, religiously, morally. That person, Jesus moves towards in grace. This very sign of entering someone's house was a sign of acceptance, of welcome. It's like in Romans 2 verse 4 when it says God's kindness leads us to repentance or in in Romans I'm going to find it 
just came to mind. I didn't have this in my notes, but it's a great passage. Romans 15, verse 7. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Some translations translate that word welcome into accept. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. This is what Jesus is doing, grace and truth. He's accepting, he's extending grace to Zacchaeus. This is grace. I must stay at your house. I'm accepting the personhood. I'm accepting who you are. All of you, your, your, your wickedness, your sin, and then grace does its work. Look at Zacchaeus' response. He says, I will restore all that I have defrauded. I will, I will give back. Grace is what changes Zacchaeus. And it's not grace devoid of truth. I'm sure Jesus is teaching him. That's what Jesus did, right? He taught truth. He embodied grace and truth. But it's this very act of acceptance, of welcome, of, of coming into Zacchaeus' house. And then Jesus responds with truth. Today, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' response, I will restore what I've wronged. I mean, Jesus moves towards him in grace and truth. His grace and truth causes Zacchaeus to restore what was wronged. Zacchaeus' repentance, it it followed a relationship of acceptance. And that's what I want you to see here. Zacchaeus' repentance. He repented. He said, I, I, will, I will undo what I've done. I want to do right now, right by people. I want to undo what I've done. He repented, but his repentance followed a relationship of acceptance from God. Grace and truth. Jesus' response, today salvation has come to your house. Forgiveness, which followed repentance. Right? So there was acceptance from Jesus to Zacchaeus, which led to repentance of Zacchaeus, and then forgiveness from Jesus. Acceptance, repentance, forgiveness. That's the trajectory in the story that we see here. So how might this story, the story of Jesus, full of grace and truth with Zacchaeus, transform how we accept people who are still in willful sin? which if we're honest, aren't all of us at points? How does this story show us how we ought to accept people who are still in willful sin, who have different moral categories than us, different political categories than us, different religious categories than us? It seems like if we're following Jesus, it would start with acceptance, and that involves grace and truth, acceptance, and sometimes, not always, sometimes, repentance, and forgiveness. One more passage as we finish up this morning. Two pages to the right. Luke chapter 22. Luke twenty-two fourteen, and this will lead us into communion. Luke twenty-two fourteen through 23. And when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. Let me tell you right now, Before I go any further, Judas was one of those apostles with him. That's what I want to consider here as we close down. Verse 15, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for the this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And there's the, the communion flow, right? Bread and wine. Jesus' body given for us, his blood shed for us. And then look verse 21. He says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could be who was going to do this? Judas, there among the twelve, with Jesus, eating the Lord's Supper. Grace, acceptance, welcome, invitation, relational connection, yet truth. Woe to the one who's going to betray me. There is a woeful future for you. For there is an exclusive way to God, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And woe to the one who denies him. Yet in that relational acceptance and warmth, with a betrayer, with a deceiver, with a guy who is stealing money from the money bags of Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus sits with him, and Jesus eats with him. And Jesus shares communion with him. You're going to find some churches that are very particular about who take, can take communion at their church. And, and, and I've gone through various teaching moments in my pastoral career where some people are like, you've got to be very particular and careful about who eats communion. I'm like, I don't know. Jesus ate communion with Judas. People are like, yeah, well, it says in Corinthians that if people eat communion in an unworthy manner, they're drinking judgment and condemnation upon themselves. I'm like, yeah, upon themselves, not upon me or the church. And so at Park Community Church, the communion table is open for you because Jesus invites you to the table. Now, there's a truth word here that if you reject him, it's going to go bad for you. But the table's always open. Jesus is full of grace and truth. His grace is, come to me, come to me, come to me. His truth is, I am the bread of life and the, the blood that grants you forgiveness, and so come. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a song. And, and if you want to come to the table because you want to follow Jesus, these elements are here for you to remind you of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion, and then the kids are going to come in and send us off with a Christmas carol. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your warm welcome, for your invitation, for your acceptance. I thank you that you are grace and truth. Lord, your grace is truth and your truth is grace. And so we come to the table this morning embracing you, receiving you, accepting you as grace and truth among us. And then may you transform us and empower us to go out and live as people of both grace and truth. In your name we pray, amen.